Good evening. The, uh, the second Bible reading for tonight comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. It can be found on page 1182 in most of the Pew Bibles. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you, we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, was produced, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if what I do, and if what I, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being... I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Well, friends, uh, there is an outline. If you need an outline, that will probably help tonight. And there is also a full transcript of the talk. 
If you need that to follow along, you might find that helpful. Um, just don't read the jokes. Wait for the jokes and hear it live. There won't be many tonight. Okay, so we're back to Romans this week. We had a wonderful guest speaker last week, uh, but we're back to Romans, Romans 7. Let's pray and, and we'll look at this passage. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you teach us uh, the things of our heart. You teach us the things of you. And you teach us what you've done in your son Jesus, that we might know of the glory that you have prepared for us and of how we are to live while we wait. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you would know, some of you have not yet met, but many of you would know that uh, we have three children, 10 years old, uh, 8 and 6. And it's been quite fascinating just to watch our three kids grow up to see how different they are in their personalities, in their interests. They're, they're all very different. Now, one of my children, who shall remain nameless, loves looking at himself or herself to remain nameless in the mirror. It was after the shower, he or her, you know, it's all crazy in front of the mirror. Even at dinner, we, our, our dining table is next to this glass light door, and this child, he or her, looks at him or herself eating, always looking at himself or herself, <laughs> just to remain nameless. And if you're in our house long enough, you'll hear us scream at this child, stop looking at yourself. Don't know where this child gets it from. Must be from one of the parents, not me. <laughs> now, I know some of you guys go to the gym a lot too, and I know some of you guys like the mirror as well, standing in front of it with these weights, flexing and grunting. Not that I know anything about that. But what do mirrors do? Well, they show a reflection of what we're like, don't they? And if you look closely enough, you see all the flaws, the blemishes, the imperfections, the pimples, and whatever else grows on a human face. My children, they often point out to me, my face is a weird face. They say, one of your eyes is smaller than the other. A faulty face I have. That's what they tell me. Well, in a sense, morally speaking, that is what the law of God does to us. It shines a reflection on our life. And it shows what we're like, how we are living. In fact, it really just shows how we are falling short. It highlights our moral flaws, our moral blemishes, our moral imperfections. And so let's just imagine this. Imagine the mirror of the law of God follows you around all day, every day, and shines a light on the deepest recesses of your heart. How would you feel about that? It exposes everything. It points out every flaw. It calls out every mistake. It shows every sin. And it calls you guilty. You did that, I saw that. Guilty. You did that, you're condemned. I mean, that's what the law does. And so when you're in the car, someone cuts in front of you. And you're fuming, you're angry inside. The law is there. The mirror is there condemning you. Or when you get your exam results and your friend does better than you and you're jealous inside, the mirror is there. It's condemning you. Or when you're at work and, and you get a promotion and you get it suddenly a big, massive head, you're proud of yourself and the mirror is there condemning you. 
Or you're taking a walk and you pass these wonderful houses with tennis courts and swimming pools and, 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 and you're envious inside. The mirror is there condemning you. Or when you're alone on the computer, you're looking at lustful things you shouldn't be. The mirror is there condemning you. Or when you look at your bank balance and, and, and you see it and you're, you're greedy, you're idolatrous, the mirror is there and it's condemning you. I mean, how would that make you feel? Every day, every minute of the day, the mirror of God's law is there reflecting on our hearts, showing what we're like inside. Always pointing, pointing, never lifting the finger to help us. It it will be crushing. It will be debilitating. I mean, the law of God constantly says to us, you are just not good enough. You'll never be good enough. And finally, because you are not good enough, you will deserve judgment. Now, for us who know the high, perfect moral standard of the law of God, that is what it does. And so it will be deceptive for any of us to think that we can stand up against the law of God and think, I'm actually pretty good. I'm pretty decent. For anyone to think that is to not know the high standard of the law of God. But that's why today this passage is so important, so important for us to understand. So as we look at this passage, we'll ask three questions. Firstly, how can I be free from this condemning law? I want to escape it. How can I get free from it? Second question, well, if I remain under the law, can't I just blame the law? It's all the law's fault. And thirdly, if I maybe just try harder, can't I just try harder? Third question. Well, firstly, let's have a look. How can I be free from this condemning law of God? I mean, I don't want to live a life, and I'm sure you don't want to live a life where Every minute, every day, every week, every month, the law is there condemning us, pointing at us, scrutinizing. You are not good enough. You will never be good enough. I do not want that type of life. Well, that's why this is important. You see, following on from Romans chapter 6, there is a way to be free from the jurisdiction of the law. There is a way of life that is free from bondage to the law, and there is a way of life that will not be condemned by the law. There is a way. And so Paul here, if you have your Bibles open, we'll work through the whole chapter 7. Paul here uses marriage as an illustration of what needs to happen to be freed from the law. He uses marriage as an illustration. And what he says here is that there must be death to break the bond. Just like in marriage. When you get married, it is for life. It is until death does us part. It is for life. It is binding until life. But then when one dies, the other is in fact free to get married, to remarry. Now, we've often spoken about this. We've joked about it, Yvonne and myself, and we've even spoken about this with our kids. And I've said to Yvonne, if I die first, which I might because I'm not very healthy, And I don't mind dying first because I'll be in glory. You suffer here on earth. And I've said this to Yvonne. If I die first, Yvonne, you are free to marry, remarry. You know, good luck trying to find someone like me, but you are free to marry. But you see, marriage is for life. It is only broken by death. And that's what we see, verse 2. Have a look. For example, 
By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So Paul is using this analogy, this illustration. And so the law of God, likewise, will continue to be binding until there is death, until someone dies. You will be guilty under the law. You will be condemned under the law. It will continue to hold on to you and grip onto you until death. Now, when we reflect on what we learned in chapter 6, what happened when anyone becomes a Christian? What's the spiritual thing that has happened when anyone becomes a Christian, when anyone turns to faith in Christ? Well, they get united to him. Do you remember that? And so when we get united to Christ by faith, we get united to his death as well. His death also meant our death. And so when he died, he died for all that the law condemns me for. And so when I lied, the law condemns me for that. Well, Jesus, when he died, he died for that sin. When I lusted and the law condemns me for that, well, when Jesus died, he died for that sin. When I commit idolatry and the law condemns me for that, well, Jesus died for that sin too. You see, by trusting in Jesus, when he died, I get united to him and I also die. That is how this bond to the law can be broken. And so we see this. Look at verse 4 now. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God. You see, it was faith that bonded me to Christ in his death, and is this death, that death, that severed my bond to the law. It is that death. And so let's try to picture this. Uh, being an engineer, I try to... Uh, all these words just made it confusing for me. We are all under the law. Every single human being, all living under the law. The law of God. The moral law of God that will condemn us. Now what we see here is that in this passage is that the law, it, in verse 5, have a look. It exposes our sins, it condemns us. So verse 5, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies and so, so that we bore fruit for death. And so being under law, this is everyone, we sin, which means we will also die. But then what happened? Well, in the gospel, by being united to Christ, what has happened is that we are now under grace. And verse 6 describes what has happened under grace. Have a look at verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So do you see that transition in the entire world? Seven billion people. Everyone fits either in the red circle or the blue circle. You get from the red circle to the blue circle through Jesus, no other way, and life completely changes, completely changes. And so what we see here in these two verses is really the gospel in miniature, what life is like under the law and under grace. And what we will see in the rest of chapter 7 is what it will look like under law. 
So what we'll see in the rest of this chapter, under law where there is condemnation, where there is death, and then next week in chapter 8, next following weeks, we'll see what it looks like to have life under grace, where there is the working of the Spirit. We don't see the Spirit today, we see the Spirit in chapter 8, where there will be salvation, where there is fruit of righteousness. And so do you see that? That's the structure of what we're looking at. So how can we be free from the condemning laws of God? Well, the only way we can be free is if there is death and Jesus has died and us believing in him, we're united in his death as well. That's the only way to be free from the condemning, scrutinizing laws of God. Now, Paul, what he does is he now anticipates the objections. We've noticed this in Romans. There's a question and there's an answer, question, answer. These questions are really Paul anticipating what the Jewish people will be questioning what they would raise and so you see for the jewish people for the jewish people the law was everything to them they've received this revelation from god the law was everything for them they were the words of god but yet it was these very laws that condemned them then they're thinking in their mind surely it's the law's fault we must blame the law so can't we just blame the law? It's the law's fault for condemning us. It's the law's fault for condemning us to death. And so we see this. Look at verse 7, their question. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? They're blaming the law. And what does Paul say? Certainly not. If you blame the law, then you have misunderstood the purpose of the law. You see, the law of God is not sin. It only points out sin. It's like the mirror that is held up and it exposes the flaws. It exposes the flaws and imperfections and blemishes. And so the rest of verse 7, Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So do you see what Paul is telling us about the law? It exposes sin. It's just like when you're driving and down a street and there are no speed signs and you're going down at 70 kilometres per hour. You, you don't know you're speeding. You, there's no signs there. You're not aware if you're breaking any laws. But then you happen to see another sign further down and it's only 60 kilometres. What has that done? It's exposed your sin. You've broken the law. You were 10 kilometres over. So when the law is revealed, it exposes our sins. But then what Paul also says here is that the law not only exposes our sins and our failings and our faults, it in fact arouses sin. It makes us want to sin more. And so just say now, down that same street, you know that it is 60 kilometers. That is the limit. But because you know that, let me, let me ask you, will you push the limit? 61 62, 63, look around, no speed cameras, 64, no police cars, 65. You see, what sin does is that it is aroused by the law. It, it pushes the limit because it's like that forbidden fruit. Because it's forbidden, I want it. And so that's what Paul goes on to say. Have a look at verses 8 to 9 now. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. 
For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. You see, once we know that it is forbidden, we want to do it. We see that in the Bible. In Exodus, when did the Israelites make that golden calf? It was in Exodus chapter 32. When was the law given to not make any idols out of anything? That was in Exodus chapter 20. Because it became a law, they went and broke the law. Or, or this other guy, a 4th century theologian, Augustine. It's quite small there, I'll, I'll read it out. Now this guy, he reflected on his own perversity, the perversity of his own sin, when he stole some pears just because it was forbidden. So in his reflection, he wrote this. Near vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youth conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pears of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. I wonder whether that's a reflection of our own life and our own sins. Because it's wrong, we like to do it. In fact, our sins is aroused by the law. It's just like the, the cookie in the jar in the kitchen. No one eats it. It's stale. But then when you tell a kid, do not touch the cookie. What do they do? They go and touch it and eat it, just like Adam and Eve. I mean, even I myself, I found myself doing this. Knowing that something is wrong, but doing it anyway. Terrible. I will confess this to you. Last year, um, I went on this hard-working study tour to Turkey. Some of you might remember that. Very hard work. Now, I remember being told before going to Turkey that you, you're not allowed to take any photos with soldiers, Turkish soldiers. It's illegal in the country. You, you see them around everywhere, these uh, soldiers with their guns. It's illegal to take photos with them. What did I do? On one of the streets in Istanbul, I took a selfie and at the back of the corner of this selfie, I knew there was a soldier there. I took it anyway. That was me. Hope you don't think differently of me. You're a bit silent there. <laughs> I've repented. But I still think I have the photo. <laughs> but you see, the law not only exposes our sin, it not only arouses our sins, but it finally also condemns our sin. And this condemnation is death. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. And so can I blame the law? It's the law's fault that I'm a sinner, that I'm condemned, that I die. I blame the law. Can I blame the law? Well, that will be a bit like a prisoner going to jail 
and blaming the law which put him in jail for breaking the law. It's ludicrous. You can't blame the law. Or it will be like this, looking in the mirror, the law of God, the mirror, seeing that ugly face and blaming the mirror. You can't do that. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And so what we see here now, what Paul says is that the law remains good. It is holy. It is righteous because it reflects God's standard, his moral standard, and it reflects God's character. So that's what we see, verse 12. So then, the law is holy. Even though it condemns, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. I can't blame the law that I'm a sinner. The law shows that I'm a sinner. I can't blame it. And so what do they do? Well, they continue to try. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? And what did Paul say? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And so here, who's to blame? You can't blame the law of God for being a sinner. We can only blame ourselves. But now, if we're still living on this side, under the law, if Paul is still talking to the Jews who are under the law, they're now thinking, well, what if I try harder? I know the laws of God. I'll just try harder. Remember, Paul is here objecting to Jewish people who think they can meet the standards of God. Surely, if, if God has given us this standard, then they are God's standard that we can meet. I'll just try harder. Now we come to these final verses and what we come to now is perhaps the most disputed and discussed passage in Romans it is a difficult one I've been reading this for many 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 weeks and and my mind has changed since I first read it years ago and I know some of the growth groups had a lively discussion on Friday so what is Paul describing here is this firstly the normal Christian experience Many people think this, many great scholars think this, because it feels so much like our Christian experience, this internal struggle. Secondly, does this describe here the non-Christian experience? Or thirdly, does it describe here Paul's experience as a law-abiding Jew before his conversion to Christ? He followed the law, but before his conversion to Christ. Well, I'll tell you what I think, and it has changed. I used to think it was the first one. I used to think that it was a Christian experience, but I'm now convinced that it's the third one. It was Paul describing his own experience as a law-abiding Jew before his conversion as a Christian. Now, you see, for those under the law, Paul is making a clear point to the Jewish people. For those who are under the law... Try as hard as you like to obey the law with all your strength. Try as hard as you like to defeat sin with your own power. Try as hard as you like to stand up to the standards of God with your own willpower, and you will fail. Try harder, and you will still fail. I think that's what Paul is describing here, that frequent and certain humiliating defeat. You try as hard as you like, keeping up to the standards of the law, you will fail. And that's why Paul can say here in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, 
You see, a Jewish person recognizes that the law of God is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I think that's one of the clues for why I think it's the third option. Sold as a slave to sin. You see, in the previous chapter, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Christians are no longer slaves to sin. Now, that does not mean that Christians don't sin. Of course we sin. Of course we make mistakes. Of course we fail. Of course we fall short. Of course we are weak. But we are not described as slaves to sin anymore. There is that major transition from being under the law to under grace. But an Old Testament Jewish person who loves the law is still a slave to sin, still under the law. They might have the best of intentions, but it won't be good enough. And so just think about what Paul has described there. What does it look like, the yellow circle or the blue circle? It looks a lot more like the, I mean, not yellow. Where did I get yellow from? (laughs) I was testing whether you were listening. The red one. And so now we come to this wonderful tongue twister from verse 15 onwards. This internal battle that is described. It's really the internal battle of the law-abiding Jew who tries to do good, tries to be moral, tries to work hard, but does not have the resources to carry it out because he is still captive to sin. And so let's read it. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Okay, a Jew would think that. A Jew would think that the law is good. Okay, verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. A Christian cannot claim that. If we are living in step with the Spirit, the Spirit empowers us to do what is right and good. We will fail, of course. We're not perfect, but the Spirit empowers us. Verse 19. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and make me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members." Now, think about that description, his internal battles. Does that look like the red one or the blue one? Does it look like someone who is freed from the law, bearing fruit for God, living the way of the Spirit? Well, that's why I think this is poor pre-conversion. This is Paul who recognizes that as a law-abiding Jew who honors the Word of God, who honors the laws of God, as hard as he tried... There were no resources in the law to help him obey. The law is powerless to save. That is the point Paul is making. The law is powerless to save. It cannot save. Our Bible scholar, J.B. Phillips, he puts it this way. 
He said, the law, it, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. The law makes us conscious of our sin. What the law will not do is provide a right standing with God through observance of its requirements. And so I can't blame the law, nor can I rely on the law for salvation. Trying harder, knowing the laws of God, they are wonderful, they are good, not trying harder, that will just not help. The mirror will still show all the flaws. And so how can I move from being under law to under grace? How can I move from being such a wretched man to being one who is saved? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? Verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, the word wretched here in the Greek describes a person who is exhausted after a battle, completely exhausted. You see, Paul is describing he's exerted as a Jewish person all his energy trying to be good, trying to meet the standards of the law. But he just left him a wretched man. You see, his best efforts were not good enough because under the law, it never will be. And so verse 24, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that is what the Lord does. I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's another long one, but it's a wonderful one. Why we need to understand the Lord? Because the Lord shows the darkness, the blackness of our heart, and it forces us to cling to Christ. So listen to this. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and, con and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. See, that's Paul's experience as a law-abiding Jew. It was helpless. It showed and revealed the blackness of his heart and his desperate need for Jesus. And so here in this passage, Paul summarizes what life was like under the law. It's hopeless. Verse 25, So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Another guy, John Bunyan, Puritan preacher from the 1600s, he helpfully describes this captivity and the hopeless, uh, hopelessness of the law, but yet the freedom of grace. He said in this poem, Run, John. You know, he thought about me, I'm sure. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You like that? 
I like it. I'm in it. <laughs> now, what are we to make of this passage? It's a big one. It's a difficult one. And let me tell you, it was difficult preparing this one. Well, firstly, I have four, th- four things to say. Firstly, this passage does not teach that once Christians, once anyone becomes a Christian, they will never sin, that we will become perfect. It does not teach perfectionism. In fact, it's often the godliness, godliest of Christians who are most aware of their own sins, but are also equally at the same time most aware of the limitless love of God for them in Christ. So this passage does not teach that once you become a Christian, you stop sinning. No, that's not the case at all. You still sin, you still fail, but you are not a slave to sin. You see, that is the comfort that we should draw from this passage. Though we look at the mirror, though the mirror might condemn us, might call us your your curse, you're a sinner, you should be damned, and it weighs us down, Jesus says, I love you still. I love you still. So firstly, this passage does not teach perfectionism. Secondly, it doesn't teach legalism. Often Christians, and I feel this happens quite a lot, often Christians feel that we are saved by grace, but we must mature by, by obeying the law, by works. And so we impose laws upon laws upon laws upon ourselves to make us seem more godly. That's the wrong way about it. And that's why you have so many different Christian denominations. You can see some are very, very easygoing, but then you, you, you move to some of the churches and it's a lot more stricter and, and stricter and stricter. It's because I speak many of them put upon themselves laws upon laws. And so there are churches or denominations that will still follow the food laws. I mean, that would be a terrible thing. I'm glad we don't do that. If we follow the food laws, there's no more yum cha for anyone. <laughs> Some churches still have strict clothing, uh, what you wear, clothing laws. But what we see here is that the law has no resources to save, nor does the law have any resources to make us mature. We begin by grace. It's a free gift, unmerited. We continue by grace. And it is grace that motivates. It is grace that motivates, not legalism that motivates. It is grace. And it's important to remember. I've read a wonderful book. It's a book that I read with some blokes and get some blokes to read. The book is called Captured by a Better Vision, written by Tim Chester. Really a book telling guys about living a porn-free life. Now, how do you stop a bloke, a Christian bloke, stop looking at porn? What do you do? You can just give him rules. Don't do it. Don't look at it. Don't watch it. Don't think it. Just pile rules and laws upon laws upon laws. It just won't work. Now, the wonderful wonderful thing about this, this book is that it is motivated by grace. You became a Christian by grace. You grow as a Christian by grace. Remember the love of God. Remember the sacrifice of Christ. Remember the workings of the Spirit in your heart, in your life, now that you are a Christian, motivated by grace. And so what Paul is telling us here is that the Lord does not have any resources to mature us. It is the gospel. It is grace. Thirdly, this passage does not encourage licentiousness. 
that is, now that we are saved by grace, we can just go on doing anything, breaking all laws and thinking and trusting God will forgive us anyway. That's his job. The grace of God is always bigger than my sin and take advantage of the grace of God. But this passage does not teach that we can be licentious. You see, the laws are still good. Even though we are not under the condemnation of the law, the laws of God are still good. We saw that in verse 12, because they reflect God's good character, how God has purposed life to be lived. And so the motivation there is that we don't just do anything, but out of love for God and empowered by the Spirit, we walk in step with the Spirit, which is aligned with the will of God and, and his laws. Now Spurgeon, he, he put it wonderfully. He, he said this, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Isn't that wonderful? That's motivation for Christian living, for godly Christian living, for maturing as a Christian. It is the love of God who sought us and seeks our good. Finally, it is, it is not perfectionism that is taught here, not legalism, not licentiousness. What is taught here, it is grace. You begin by grace, you continue in grace, and you end in grace. God's grace is better than our efforts, way better than all our efforts. Covers all our past sins and shame and guilt. It promises us this wonderful future, and it sustains us to live today in honor of Him. Isn't that wonderful? We begin by grace, we continue in grace, and we end in grace. And so you see, this passage is of great comfort to us. And how did Paul end? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He rescues us from our body of death. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know we are so undeserving. Your law shows our faults, our flaws, our imperfections, our sins, our guilt, our shame. But yet in your kindness, through your Son, you would deliver us from the condemnation of the law into life with you, life by the Spirit. So we pray, Lord, that you help us to live joyfully with the freedom we now have to love you in serving you and your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.